Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Jason, how's it going today? Caleb, it is going very well. I'm having an excellent day. I'm having day. a good time. Uh, yeah, fun day. Uh, fun drink we have to talk about here. We're going to talk about some scandalous stuff, how financial advisors lie. Yes, and we are well positioned to explain how they lie, being <laughs> liars, financial advisors <laughs> ourselves. Uh, I, I think it's a good topic to get it, into. It should be fun. And really, it goes right along with some questions we've had from some listeners, well, one in particular, about how do you find a good financial advisor? And you yeah. know, to his credit, he said, how do I find a financial advisor like you? Like you. Um, not, not you, but like you. <laughs> yeah, not you. I know you. Somebody like you would be good, though. So this kind of goes in with that. So we thought, uh, what would be a good way to tell people about choosing a financial advisor? And what better way than saying what they should be leery of? Yeah. So I say this a lot. This could be a series on on how to choose a financial advisor. This could be the start of a series. It could be. We'll see what kind of reaction we have uh, uh-huh. if people want to know. I really... They should just choose... Us? Yeah. Uh, that's what I think. But <laughs> you know, there are other advisors out there that do good work. And how do you go about finding one? Yeah. You have to look hard. Well, there's some due diligence you should do. We'll get into some good questions to ask. Yeah, that's not the topic of this episode. We're just going to talk about all the bad things that, that <laughs> some of them do. Yeah, some stuff to watch out for. Yeah, this should be fun. And if if you think that, oh, Caleb has said this to me before, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> And that's not what Jason's talking about. You're taking it out of context. <laughs> we keep learning more and more. Uh, hopefully, these aren't things that we have told you if you are our clients. And if they are, I'm sure we have repented and learned and grown since then. But before we get into that, Caleb, we have a new cocktail to discuss today. Yeah, a new and very interesting cocktail. Folks, this one's not going to be easy on the budget. It requires a little bit of an investment um, up front. However... Uh, once you've bought some of these ingredients and you've got them in your cabinet, they'll probably last you a while. I hope so. They I should know. They should last a while. I hope so. Um, we are talking about the... Well, I'll let you introduce it because you have the exact title there in front of you. Today, we are talking about a very old-timey cocktail. It's the Improved Brandy Cocktail. And that's the name. It's, it's a variation on the Brandy Cocktail. Which is? Brandy. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Well, is, is I it think a, it's brandy bitters, sugar, is it and a, ice. A brandy old fashioned? Uh, I think a version of that. So there, okay. this gets a little muddy when we get into that. So if you listen to our very first episode, if you did, God bless you. Well, yeah, thank you. But I did a fun old timey voice in there, and and we should cut back to let's cut back to uh, me describing a cocktail in old timey voice. All right, ex- explain uh, what we're drinking here and your old timeiest of voices, Jason. Well, this will be the, the new part. So today we're doing the improved brandy cocktail. Um, and really, this is uh, a Jerry Thomas drink. So He's old-timey. He's very old-timey, late 1800s. Uh, I think this popped up in the 1876 appendix to his book. Uh, it's an, it's, so it's an improved version of a basic brandy cocktail. There was, there was a brandy cocktail and a gin cocktail and a whiskey cocktail, and we talked about that in episode one. That was a long time as ago. As the cocktail first came onto the scene. And Jerry Thomas improved on those ideas. The New York Tribune approached a, quote, 
man with a waxed mustache, a diamond pin, and a white linen jacket who was dispensing fluids behind the bar of a well-known uptown hotel in 1883. They asked him about absinthe in particular, Mm. and absinthe is what he used to improve these cocktails. It was pretty funny, his response. He he responds, Much absinthe drunk? Well, I should smile. (laughs) Pretty near every drink I mix has a dash of the green stuff in it. For one thing, the dash of absinthe, first attested to way back in 1843 when the sporty New York Sunday Mercury defined the cocktail as a beverage compounded of brandy, sugar, absinthe, bitters, and ice, and included in the technical literature in 1869 in the Steward and Barkeeper's Manual, helped polish up the cocktail's medicinal luster, although with a hot rails to hell edge that bitters alone could never quite achieve. Bad for the nerves, I guess not, continued the man uptown, almost defensively. You just get up of a morning feeling as if you couldn't part your hair straight and see if a cocktail or John Collins dashed with absinthe don't make a new man of your bad for the nerves. Why, you ain't been around much, I guess, young man. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Jerry <laughs> Thomas really let them have it when they asked he, about it. He was spitting not fire. Yeah, so he was a fan of absinthe. And have you done much research on absinthe? Not a lot. My wife's an art teacher, and she's a big Van Gogh fan. <laughs> yeah. I think he liked a splash of the green stuff. It's highly uh, correlated with hallucination. Uh-huh. And the little bit of research that I did on it, it's not because there's a psychedelic in it or anything like that. It's <laughs> it's just that it's really, really potent. Yeah. Uh, I think the absinthe that we're using is 64, 65 proof. Yeah, it's in the 60s. Yeah. So and it, it uh, it's not like a strong bourbon where, you know, you, you drink a, a 64% uh, bourbon and really burns yeah so like the, the the fire hits you this is not like that at all it's, yeah we're talking a, a hundred and twenty something proof uh-huh like goes to your head right away kind <laughs> of liquor so it's dangerous our recipe today does not have a lot of it in it no but it's noticeable it, it sure is so do you want to do you want to give the recipe today caleb sure yeah uh, the recipe lovely. that we use today mr jerry thomas's is it david wonderch's recipe or is this jerry thomas's this, recipe this is jerry thomas's recipe and i should give credit i, I just read a page out of jerry or out of david wonderch's book <laughs> imbibe okay where he it's pretty much an homage to to jerry thomas who is the godfather of modern bartending mm-hmm. um so this is this is a i think a updated Okay. Version of Jerry Thomas's recipe, just to, like change spelling and, and that sort of thing, I think. So this is another old old recipe, uh, an oldie but a goodie. Uh, we use two ounces of brandy, one twist of lemon peel, a dash of absinthe, two dashes of maraschino liqueur, a teaspoon of simple syrup, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Now, I will say for this variation that we're drinking here, we used not just brandy. We used some nice cognac, some Cavassier. Oh, yes. Instead of maraschino liqueur, which I could not find, I found it in other states. Luxardo, who makes the awesome cherries, uh, also makes a maraschino liqueur. I think that's what you need to get your hands on. So we have a cherry liqueur substitute here. I don't know if it's doing a good job or not. You know, you do what you can do with what you've got. That's right. uh, It doesn't taste bad. I know that. That's pretty much the only variations we have here. So a little bit nicer brandy than your your basic and uh, just a little bit of a twist on the maraschino liqueur i will say the absinthe that we used is clear it's not green it's not green the bottle was green the bottle's green yeah. i don't know if that's a throwback but i think that they took out the wormwood yeah from absinthe well, that's now. what was killing everybody i think that was poisoning people <laughs> so like you get really drunk and also poisoned and i think maybe yeah. then you hallucinate maybe that's why absinthe was bad probably wormwood's basically gone out of all the absinthe and that's i would imagine that's what was turning it green and which was 
also in turning people green. (laughs) (laughs) When you're making one of these brandy cocktails, they recommend one third of a mixing glass full of shaved ice. You pour all these ingredients in and shake it, which is a little bit different than most of the brandy cocktails or old fashioned type cocktails that we we do. Then you moisten the uh, rim of the glass with a piece of lemon, shake that baby up and... Instead of pouring it into a rocks glass like you normally would a cocktail like this, we went into a regular cocktail glass similar to what you would do with like a Manhattan and garnish that with the lemon peel. Let's just get into reactions. What did you think of it, Jason? Right away, at first, I did not know what I thought. Mm-hmm. It, it's very brandy forward. I yeah. guess that makes sense because there's a lot of it's brandy mostly in there. brandy. I I don't know if I was tasting the uh, cherry liqueur or if I was tasting the absinthe there, but there's like there's something that gives you a little bit of a I don't want to say a bitterness. It's kind of a bitterness. That could be the bitters. Could be the bitters. <laughs> Something in the back of my throat, like that licorice that taste. A- anise, however you say that word. Anise. I'm not sure about that. Anise. Anise. Uh, yeah, I think that that's the, um, when you open up the bottle of absinthe and take a whiff, that's what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go back to the Harvey Wallbanger episode where we used Galliano. Remember yeah. I referenced the... Um, the fishing. <laughs> yes. High praise for a consumable. <laughs> uh, the compound that I thought tasted, it smelled like liquor. It, I don't know what it tasted like. Ask the fish. <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> it smelled like licorice. I remember that was what I took away from that. And then I opened this bottle of absinthe and I went, oh man, this is way more licorice So we compared the Galliano and the absinthe just smelling. And the absinthe is, is I think, where that flavor is coming from. I don't know that I'm tasting the cherry liqueur in here as much, and the bitters are, are definitely there. But I, I think the the reference there to something that bitters couldn't do, I, I don't get the same flavor profile from the uh, absinthe that I would from bitters. It, they seem like two different things yeah. completely. Yeah, I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting that. I don't. It's like a rubbery taste. Is that is that fair? I don't know. It's a different. Like bitter is bitter. This is like a cloyey. It is a little, it, it coats your mouth a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now that could be the cognac though, because it's a sweeter drink in yeah. general. It, it seems like this drink is just too complicated. I, I don't think we're doing it justice because I actually, I kind of like this mm-hmm. and I'm not a licorice fan either. I said that on the, the Harvey Wallbanger episode too. I kind of like that. It just had a hint. This is a little bit more pronounced Yeah. with that licorice flavor. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say I'm an absinthe guy after drinking this but it's kind of like a brandy old-fashioned with a little bit of a twist so i i do like it uh, it's not bad i i could see making another one here real soon in a few minutes well i hope so because <laughs> that ab- we only used like a half of a teaspoon of absinthe yeah on so these two drinks that's not cheap when we talked about some expenses that uh, you're gonna have to invest in if you want to do some of these cocktails including absinthe and maraschino liqueur i think the absinthe cost us like 60 bucks probably yeah, yeah. To have a fun cocktail. It's 60 some percent alcohol and you only use splashes or you, you rinse a glass uh, when you're making yeah. a cocktail. So it should last forever. <laughs> yeah. And at 60 some percent, it's not going to go bad on you leaving it open. And there are some other cocktails that we are going to be making that mm-hmm. require it, at least just to like rinse the glass or be yeah, a part of it. We've been holding back, folks. Yes. Because <laughs> we didn't want to make this purchase. <laughs> right. <laughs> and as far as the maraschino liqueur goes... Next time I see it, I'm going to get it. I wonder, that could be a game changer because the Luxardo Maraschino cherries definitely were a game changer. Yeah, so. and I don't know what a really good brand of absinthe is. So if you've either. got that, let us know in the speakeasy. Join yeah. the speakeasy and let us know what a good brand of absinthe is and then maybe 
you know, when we run out of this bottle in a year, we will <laughs> we will buy that. Any absinthe aficionados out there, please throw your hat into the ring. Uh, light up the speakeasy. I don't really know much about it, so I'd love to learn more about this wacky spirit. Great. So there you have it. That's the improved brandy cocktail where we had our first foray into an absinthe inclusive cocktail. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That was neat. We had a drink with absinthe in it. Yeah, we're crazy. <laughs> Hey, Jason, uh, before we jump into that finance topic that we're so eager to get into, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. I'm sure our listeners have not forgotten about the randomly selected winner of a bottle of Blanton's bourbon. Yeah, we did a giveaway uh, for all of July. Um, basically, <laughs> you had to uh, had to show us that you were listening to the show and give us your email address. So pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have a winner. We do. You know, I've always wanted to do this in front of a microphone, but... Uh, what? L- Luke. Luke. Are you doing Tommy Luke, Boy talking yes. into a fan? <laughs> Luke Kuhn. Luke Kuhn, you are our randomly selected recipient of a bottle of Blanton's bourbon. Congratulations. Yeah, and if you're crazy into bourbon and you're wondering what letter, it's A. It's an A. <laughs> cool. Uh Luke, congratulations. Uh, reach out to us one way or another, and uh, we will hand deliver this bottle of Blanton's. And thank you to everyone else that participated. We appreciate it. Cool. So uh, now we're going to get into the salacious stuff, aren't we, Jason? Yes, I can't wait. I want to talk about the lies that financial advisors tell. Ooh. Caleb. We are financial advisors, and we know that not all financial advisors are evil. Though there is this study of the most disliked professions. Like, you know, you can look it up. I can't remember who does it. It's like the University of Michigan or one of those big research universities uh, has a study of the most revered professions, and it's like uh, nurse, um, (laughs) teacher, (laughs) farmer is actually up really high on that list. Uh Like, they're just like, you know, well-respected Good professions. And then the other side of the spectrum, there are all the jobs that you would assume. Harvey Wallbanger. <laughs> Attorneys. Uh, bankers. Insurance salesmen. And financial advisors. Yeah. So we are way up there. And and I know uh, you and I, we've talked, like the best part about doing this job is actually really helping people. Uh-huh. Really being a help. Almost every good financial planner that I've met, met is a helper at heart. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, bad people in this job too so i I first that's what i want to say is before we start there are tons (laughs) of really good financial advisors you can find one uh that they really care they really work really hard to do a good job sometimes they're not allowed to do as good of a job as they want because of the restrictions from Mm -hmm. their company Um, but you can find one so that's that's the goal of us telling you these lies and bringing you on the inside of this industry yeah, I, I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt and think that, you, you know, the reason I got into this business were for altruistic reasons. I wanted to help people. I like to teach people whether I'm great at that or not. I don't know. You know, I think that uh, the, the fact that it can be a financially rewarding career um, yeah. is, is good, too. But I say this all the time. It's maybe kind of tongue in cheek. I don't do this for the money. I don't even really think about it. Now, it is important that I provide for my family, but I just want to give people the benefit of the doubt and think, well, is it possible that somebody else got into this business for the exact same reasons that I did? Mm-hmm. Well, I would hope so. You know, and, and I think that, 
you ought to be able to tell where somebody's motivation is at whenever you're you're interviewing them when you're talking to somebody. Now there are some really smooth operators out there for sure, and you know they can really spin a yarn and tell a lie. I, I think you can kind of tell who's trustworthy when you're talking to somebody, but there are definitely some red flags, and I think that you know talking to folks in the past, they might have a financial advisor and they say, you know, I've got somebody and and. and the returns are okay. I'm just not so sure if I trust them. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and some of these things that, that we're going to talk about today may be uh, throwing up some of those red flags. So uh, you want to dive right in? Let's dive in. Let's, let's, what's the number one lie that we identified that financial advisors will tell? Well, the first one that we have on the list, and I would say that nobody's going to really, I, I shouldn't say nobody because some might come out and say it. I've, I have heard a few come out and say it. Yeah. Most are not so brash as to say, you're not smart enough to do this. Hence, that's why you need me. Mm-hmm. They'll imply it heavily. Heavily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, this, this I think springs up from a, a time earlier. So the, the evolution of a financial advisor as a, as a service providing industry. It has its roots in insurance, but it but it also is the the broker. Like in the seventies and eighties, you couldn't just go buy some IBM stock. Mm-hmm. You had to find a way to get it. So there was these gatekeepers, uh, brokers that, that they would they would be, and you'd go find them, and they'd have their little machine on their desk, <laughs> and they'd be getting quotes, and they could they could place trades for you and and buy stocks like IBM and all the stocks that were around back then. And there was a barrier to entry now. So this this idea that we have some extra knowledge or some secret information as financial advisors over the public is way overblown, especially in the internet age. Like you can yeah. really Google almost anything. But I talk to any professional career. I, I don't want to downplay the amount of education that we need. I, I was going to say stuff we need to know. Yeah, we do have extra knowledge. Uh, yeah. We have, and I, I think a lot of that is practical knowledge. Sure, you can Google all kinds of uh, topics and financial planning issues, but unless you've done it in practical application, I mean, th- there's knowledge and experiences on our side as well. But to your point on the broker, you had to go get a license and take a test and show that you knew more than the average cat if you were going to be a broker. Um, we have licenses, and, and I, I would say it's harder to get those things nowadays probably too. <laughs> so again, you, you don't want to downplay the fact that we have knowledge for sure, but I jokingly say this, but I kind of mean it too. Look, if I can do this, you can do it too. But the fact of the matter is it might not be what you're great at. So let me do what I'm great at and you go do what you're great at, right? Yeah, that's probably the reason for employing a financial advisor. But but I was going to use the example of like attorneys or doctors that like with the internet now and the freedom of information, the access that we have, you can go try to diagnose your <laughs> your symptoms yourself too. Yeah. And you might come to a and this that's probably not a fair uh, apples to apples. No, I love comparing this occupation to doctors. We are as important as doctors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we do it all the time. <laughs> it's it's just it's it's I guess it's easy to draw that uh, that kind of comparison um, because you can you can get the information. It is available. It's just like do you have as much experience distilling that information and weeding out the too good to be true things and and getting to the heart of it. Well, this is a good one to start because it bleeds over into the other ones that we're going to talk about. What I would say you want to really look out for is someone who tries to make this so complicated and confuse the heck out of you 
And as an advisor, the the value that they're creating is you couldn't possibly weed through all this. You need someone like me to explain this and just do it for you because you yeah. can't figure this out on your own. That's not real value. No, it's not. A, a real a real advisor should be teaching you mm-hmm. and making you smarter. And not like you don't not bringing you up to like expertise level and taking all of your no. time, but at least taking the time to explain it to you. Uh, the one of the greatest signs of intelligence is being able to to explain something really simply. I tell my clients all the time when we meet, if you don't learn something from our meeting, I haven't done my job. And I've always approached this business from the perspective that you, the more that you know as a client about what I'm doing, the more bought into the plan that you're going to be, the more comfortable with fluctuations in the market and you know, life throwing you a curveball, the more comfortable you're going to be, the more you know what the big plan is, what the reason for what we're doing is. So, so someone who leaves their client in the dark because it's just too complicated for you to understand, just trust me. Mm-hmm. That's not a good sign. That's a big red flag. You know, when it comes to the market, it can be a real scary place. We all know what we need to do. We need to buy low and sell high, but emotions get in the way. But I think that if you have an understanding of what you own and why you own it and, you know, where you're going and how to get there, you're going to get through that stuff a lot easier. And the only way to do that as an advisor is to really approach it from a, you know, like Dave Ramsey says, the heart of a teacher. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's I, I think as far as red flags go, trying to overcomplicate things you know, to the point where you just, you need somebody else to filter through all this Mm -hmm. stuff for you. That's actually the sign of someone who doesn't know what they're doing if they can't teach what they're doing. Well, sometimes they're just a salesman. They're trying to bulldoze you and just get you into agreeing with them to buy what they're selling, which leads us right into the second big (laughs) bullet point that we have, which is, which is be really leery if your advisor claims that they will beat the market. Yeah, this is a big red flag (laughs) for a lot of reasons. They won't. The number one reason is they will not. They may beat it uh, a quarter here and there or a month here and there or a whole year or three years. But on average, they don't beat the market. I don't know how I feel about even wanting to work with someone whose objective is trying to beat the market. Right. That's unsettling. There are hedge funds for that. And you can you can go invest in one of those. And those do a really bad job of beating the market they also do. from all the data that we can look at. Yeah. Uh, trying to beat the market. I, I simply tell folks, look, here, here's the thing. If someone out there is consistently beating the markets, then why are they doing what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Why are they schlepping into the office every day? And meeting with tons of people when, look, I mean, if they're that good at it, why couldn't they just invest their money there, make buku dollars and and go sip drinks on a beach somewhere? If they're so good, they should be starting a hedge fund. They should be starting their own mutual fund or or, uh, TAMP. (laughs) You know who beat the market all the time? Bernie Madoff. (laughs) That guy beat the market by a lot every year. He did. How did he do that? Illegally. He lied. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that that's uh, that should definitely be a red flag. A- again, if somebody could do it, then someone would be replicating that process and everyone would be beating the market then. And that's what we have seen actually uh, come to play now. There's a really good argument to be made for passive investing, mm-hmm. index investing, uh, in, which is really just buying and holding a giant diversified basket of stocks like the S&P 500. And... That's where that's where we're comparing most of this data when we look at it. Yeah. Like advisors, mutual funds, investment managers, they just don't outperform the averages 
long term. Nobody does. Yeah. I always say, though, live by performance, die by performance. Mm-hmm. And I've seen financial advisors who spend all of their time talking about how how well their portfolios perform and what they're doing when the market's doing this. Yeah. And they're zigging when everybody's zagging. Uh, let me tell you, if you're hanging your hat on that, you're not going to be in business very long or you're going to turn over clients pretty quickly because inevitably, even if you beat the market four years out of five, if you're not a likable person who can't teach your uh, yeah. your clients uh, about financial planning and get them bought into the process, when you don't follow through and beat the market, they're gone. Yeah, and you should leave. If that's why you're with your advisor to if beat the market, as soon as they don't, you yeah. should go. If I that's just, your value, go to the next guy that's And they'll probably the be somewhere that will do a similar job performing against the market indexes uh, for cheaper. Yeah. There's, it's a race to the bottom on that. Well, and that's a good lead into the next point, actually, Jason, which is <laughs> fees. How often have we heard, well, my financial advisor doesn't charge me any fees or, well, there's no cost to this investment. What do you have to say to that? That is the third lie that financial <laughs> advisors tell. They will say there are no fees. There are no costs. At least disclosed. They'll they'll imply it, maybe. Uh, so... Everything, we all know this, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Everything uh-huh. costs something. Yeah. Here's an egregious example. And they don't they don't claim that there's no fees. One of the largest broker dealers in our country, very famous, do a pretty good job probably overall. They have what's called revenue sharing agreements with, with fund companies. So you buy their funds. That's fund company. Fund I, for a company. second, it sounded like you said fund companies. Fun. And I thought, ooh. They're fun, fund, like mutual fund, <laughs> exchange-traded fund companies. These companies that sell their investments, they're disclosing, but the broker is getting paid on the back end from the fund company after they sell you their fund. And that's disclosed, but you don't. they're not going to tell you about it. Like, yeah, by the way, yeah. why did I choose this one for you? Well, they pay me on the back end and then they take it out of your performance. Yeah. And this definitely, this conversation is a whole other episode, by the way. Oh, for sure. If people are interested in that, we could talk about it forever. That's it's- kind of a fee discussion, right? I, I want to jump straight to cost. Okay. Because you might even have something that doesn't have explicit fees, but there is a cost. There's always a cost. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm kind of... Uh, talking out of both sides of my mouth here, I guess. There's a there's a cost to rolling out of bed in the morning too. Oh yeah. There's a cost to getting in your car and driving to work. There's there's a cost to everything. But you know, the one thing that is sticking in my mind, there's no cost. There's no cost. We see that a lot with annuity salesmen, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. You know, a fixed annuity or an index annuity. Well, here's one of the advantages. There's no cost. There's there's no fees. Yeah. You're right. Maybe there are no explicit fees. But what's the cost? To something with a fixed rate of return or a you know highest potential rate of return. I, I met with a client the other day who you know he's in one of those ten year index annuities that the first year performed really well, mm-hmm. and by performed really well I mean the market went down and he didn't lose any money. Yeah, woo! So far it worked right <laughs> and no cost. Great. The next year when the caps on the indexes reset, mm-hmm. well when he started the cap was five and now it's one. You can meaning he can only make a maximum of one maximum return of one percent. So while that advisor could say, "Look, I told you no fees," mm-hmm. no there's cost. certainly cost involved. Yeah, there. there's the opportunity cost of the markets rebounding that year and making 
buku money on your money. I haven't even thought about this. I was this was not even in my <laughs> mind when advisors say there's no fees, no costs. And this is huge. Let's talk again about costs then. When you want to bail on that program because you've got nine years to go where your cap is one percent, you're going to pay explicitly fees. Oh yeah, on the way out. Quite right? quite a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. They don't ever talk about that because you know you you know what you're getting into. You sign the contract. Yeah. And you read all of that. You took it to your attorney's office and had him explain, uh, explain it all, all to you. It. And I'm sure that your advisor spent hours explaining all of the goings on inside there. And we're not trying to, we're not trying to be holier than thou. I mean, how many mutual fund prospectuses do you read, Jason? I. <laughs> how many have you read this week? I'm yeah. going to tell you, it's probably exact. I can guess exactly how many you've read. Well, we've done our due diligence, Caleb. True. But I can't remember all of that stuff. That's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not going to tell you what the top 100 holdings of one of the funds that we carry in our portfolios are. That's hard. It, you can't fit it all in your brain. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that an advisor has to be able to disclose every moving part and every minute detail, but that's a pretty big cost yeah. involved that's never disclosed. Sure. So you have to look at all costs involved, opportunity cost. You know, you got to look at back end sales. They might not charge you anything going in, but there could be a big penalty to move out. Those are all things that you got to factor in. But yeah. this is where I see it all the time where someone says, well, my advisor is not charging me anything or there's no cost. There's some other areas, though, where we see that, too. Right, Jason? In, in the funds world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but they are. They're, they're charging you. And yeah. that's like everybody. How are these companies in business? How is your advisor in business? Think about how they're getting paid and why they're getting paid. Expense ratios and mutual funds and ETFs and things yeah. of that nature. It'd be really easy to hide that stuff. And a lot of people do. And, you know, there's more to picking a fund than just the expense ratio. But mm-hmm. but that's a good place to look and, and seeing about 12B1 fees inside mutual funds that you have. You know, those are going to pay expenses. The revenue sharing agreement that I talked about, that, that those exist, like those those companies are paying to be on the platform that is being offered to you at the expense of other, maybe less expensive, better performing funds, and they're being chosen for you. I, I know the firm that you're talking about, and they are not the most egregious yeah. practicer of this. No. There's a couple of other ones. We see their t-shirts all over the place. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about subpar funds that are more expensive that pay their advisors a lot more. I mean, yeah. who are we looking out for here, folks? That's dirty a little bit. And that is a great transition also. So how do you avoid that, Caleb? Yeah, well, we're talking about conflicts of interest here is what we're talking about. Yeah. And conflicts of interest should be disclosed. I'm sure that if you have any interest in finance in general, you have probably heard this term fiduciary or fee only. What does that mean though, Jason? Fiduciary, very simply put, means they're looking out for your best interest. When you hire an attorney, because they know so much more about the law than you, they are what's known as a fiduciary. They have to act in your best interest because you don't know what the law is. So they have to know that and act in your best interest. The same with a physician. I'm going to see your definition and I'm going to raise. I I would define a fiduciary as someone who has a legal obligation to do what's in your best interest over their own. Exactly. Not just knows enough or or knows more, and so they should, but have a legal obligation to do so. Because they know so much more. Exactly. How often do we hear, I'm a fiduciary, wink, wink. Yeah. So a lie that financial advisors tell, the fourth one is that I'm a fiduciary, and then they leave out the part that is, except Except for when when I'm I'm not. not. (laughs) 
uh, financial advisors can act in two capacities, and that is as a fiduciary on the one hand, which is like this bright, glowing, can do no wrong. And I don't want to, I don't, I'm saying that tongue in cheek because I referenced Bernie Madoff earlier. Yeah. That guy was a fiduciary. So it doesn't, it doesn't solve all your woes. But the other area that a financial advisor can act in is not as a fiduciary. It is, is as somebody that operates on what's called the suitability standard, which means they just can't put you in something that's not suitable. So this would be more of the brokerage capacity. Right. They're going to sell you a stock or a fund or, yeah. We look at structures of business in, in this world, registered investment advisors, fiduciaries, fee-only advisors like we are. We both came from the bank, which had their RIA arm, but they also had the broker-dealer side of things. So there's someone who has a dual capacity that I, I am a fiduciary when I am acting on this side of the house, mm-hmm. but I'm also an agent or a broker on this side and I'm operating on suitability, which like you said, the responsibility really there is I have to do what's right for you based on what I know at this point in time. And if five years down the road, it doesn't make any sense anymore. My hands are clean. And that also generally comes with uh, a different arrangement for how they're paid, right? In the form of commissions. You're usually paid in commissions. I I think the the red flag should go up if you're signing something that is a best interest exemption form. They have they have those out now uh, where you are acknowledging that the advisor is not working in your best interest. And you should think about that. At the bank, when they were developing all the, the language for these BIC forms, we called them, it really, and I understand it, it was a disclosure that we needed to give our clients to let them know that, look, we can act in two capacities. In this example, we might be acting here. Here's the deal. It's another disclosure that you're throwing at somebody. Next thing you know, they walk out of your office with a thousand pages that they're not reading any of it. You know, for me, leaving the bank channel and and coming here and working in the capacity that we're working in, I'm not saying that every product out there that is sold on a commission basis or anything like that is evil. I'm not saying that A-share mutual funds are, are wrong necessarily. I'm not saying that all annuities and all circumstances are not beneficial. Life insurance. We are big fans of life insurance. We just don't sell it here and get paid on it. So I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but there is always a conflict of interest if you're being compensated that way. I say take the conflict of interest out. We tell our clients all the time, look, as fiduciaries, the biggest conflict of interest we really have is we want to manage your money. Yeah. We want you to be a client. You should pay us. (laughs) That's our only conflict, but that's probably worth giving a little bit of time to when, when, Folks, when advisors aren't working in their fiduciary capacity, even though they are, they'll be called fee-based because they're a fiduciary sometimes and the other time they're not. When they're not working in a fiduciary capacity, they are probably being compensated by commissions. And when you get paid commissions, you have maybe a menu of financial products you can sell. Let's say it's just mutual funds. You got 30 different mutual funds I could recommend to this guy that my my broker-dealer lets me offer. But five of them pay me almost 6% commission and all the rest pay me 3%, what am I incentivized to sell you if they do the same thing? So I have a conflict there. I'm maybe not picking what's absolutely best for you because I have a conflict because what's best for me is getting paid the most. And look, there are plenty of advisors that work in that capacity that are good advisors who have their client's best interest at heart. But the, the fact of the matter is there is a conflict of interest there. It's something that should be disclosed. For sure. And it is, but it's just like you said, it's lost in piles of disclosures, which even like no matter how kind hearted and honest you are as an advisor, you're going to have pages and pages of disclosures and, and that. So that's just a, 
just a part of this business that gets in the way. Yeah, fiduciary is a big one. That's a, almost a buzzword that we hear thrown around. Yeah, it's almost meaningless now. Just because you say you're a fiduciary doesn't mean that you're acting in your client's best interest. That That's a tough one, but we hear a lot of that. I've seen some of the worst financial planning done by fiduciary. <laughs> it's true. So just just be on the lookout if somebody's saying they're a fiduciary and saying that that absolves them of the any inability like any ability to do you wrong. Yeah. Jason, uh what's the next lie that financial advisors tell? Uh, it goes right along with uh the fiduciary thing and the fees and costs and expenses. Uh, I have you ever heard a client or a prospective client tell you that their advisor only makes money when they make money? All the time. That's illegal. In a hedge fund, it's okay. That's for a sophisticated investor. But for the most part, for a regular old financial advisor, you you might be phrasing it wrong or maybe you understood it wrong, but advisors cannot be paid on the increase in your portfolio only. So there's another big firm. We're going to stay away from naming firms. Yeah, let's not name names. But a very large firm. They hate annuities, maybe more than us. (laughs) They're very effective in their TV advertising and radio advertising. And the way that they word it, I like it better. But here's the other thing. People hear what they want to hear and they walk away with that. If it sounds a lot like this, then that's what I take away from it. And they, they say, we, how do they put it, Jason? Um, when you do better, we do better. Which makes it sound like, hey, this is only good for us if you make money. Yeah. So I, I know people who have been at that firm who say... Well, what I like about them is that they only get paid when I make money. Well, that's a load. (laughs) Yeah, that's not entirely correct. And that's how we're structured. But we will still bill you if the market goes backwards. And and this is the way that I explain that. Look, when the markets are up and rocking and rolling like they have, you're happy. I'm happy. You know, we both got a raise. (laughs) When the markets are down and you're not real happy, I still got paid, but I took a pay cut. And I'm still doing the same amount of work, if not more. The way that we're structured is directly tied to the performance in our in our accounts, for sure. But like you mentioned, we hear a, a lot of people that are not qualified to invest in a hedge fund that are walking around with that hedge fund mentality that they're only paying when they go up. Yeah. And, and most hedge funds also charge you a flat rate as well as a percentage of, of the gains. So just a quick breakdown on how financial advisors get paid. Usually... They will either just bill you a flat rate. It can be based on anything. They could, you know, hourly, monthly retainer. They bill you and you pay them. You write them a check or you you pay them from your credit card. Or they'll bill you straight from the assets that they're managing, which is the most popular. It's called AUM or assets under management billing. That's what we do here. You you have a percent of the assets that you bill on annually, and it comes out monthly or quarterly or whatever. And then another way is commissions. The advisor will recommend a product to you, sell it to you, and the company uh, that puts that product out will pay the advisor a commission. Find out which of those it is. Let's uh, play a couple of those out. I just talked about the scenario, the way that a fiduciary or an AUM type of a, an agreement where you get paid a percentage of the overall assets. If they go up, advisor does well. If they go down, the advisor takes a pay cut. I, I put it this way. We're all in the same boat. You're happy when I'm happy. I'm not so happy when you're unhappy. Let's get into the commission side of things. Let's say that I sold you a product that carries a commission and almost immediately after the markets tank 20, 25%, you're down with the markets. You're not happy. At least I still got paid, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. Right? Nobody's going back (laughs) and taking my commission. 
Right. There's where the conflict of interest really comes in is it only has to be suitable at the time of the transaction. And beyond that, the advisor is not on the hook. They're, they're not exposed at all. Now, they might have an unhappy client on their hands, but what if that client decides to leave? Well, <laughs> I still got paid and now I don't have to do any of the work. That, that really is another episode or it could be more than, than just an episode, but how, how advisors get paid. And that's, you know, fees aren't everything, obviously, but it is important. Obviously, looking at the list here, it's a lot of what financial advisors lie about. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So the sixth thing, Jason, that financial advisors lie about, and I love this one, is, look, we're guaranteed to not lose any money. How can they do that, Jason? Yeah, it's got to mostly be, well, first, you like the word guarantee is like, it's probably just flagged us on yeah. this podcast being registered people <laughs> and saying it. You can't say guarantees. You just can't do it because you can't guarantee it. I guarantee that I can't guarantee anything in this business. There you go. That's a workaround. I, I suppose it would be popular with, with people selling annuities. Sure. If you have a fixed annuity or an index annuity, you could say, this is guaranteed to not go down. And, and you may be selling an actual guarantee in the form of a writer or something like that, but that's not usually what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, it? not usually. We're usually talking about, well, let's go back to that example that I had earlier of the client who was in one of those 10-year products, one year and decided, I've made a huge, huge mistake. Now what? Well, hey, at least you're guaranteed to not lose any money. Remember last year when the markets were down, you didn't lose anything. Yeah. But I want to move this now. Oh, that's going to cost you a lot of money. So right. the market didn't cause you to lose any money. But were you guaranteed to not lose money? No, you're guaranteed to lose money if you pull that before your 10 years are up. Right. And there's a there's a similar story for if you just took it, like you bought gold and buried it in your backyard, or you took cash and just left it in your bank account. That's also not going to go backwards. You're guaranteed to not lose. But what about inflation? And what about purchasing power? Exactly. Like what about accessibility to it? If your gold is buried and you have to dig it up and then you have to find someone to buy your gold or trade your gold for whatever service or good you're trying to get, there's risks there too. When advisors say you're guaranteed to not lose money, what they're saying is, in parentheses, due to market fluctuations. But there are other risks involved. There are other costs involved that we just talked about, like surrender fees, market value adjustment. We won't get into that. We'll Actually, we'll interview a uh, an annuity wholesaler to explain market value adjustment no, to our we audience. We will not be doing that. <laughs> no, I just want to see them squirm. well you see there's a lot of things that things like opportunity cost uh money sitting in a bank account the fact that your purchasing power is losing uh, is going you know down and down and down by the minute um those are costs that are factored in there as well that that i would i would consider those ways of losing money safe ways of losing money the bottom line is if an advisor says you're guaranteed anything you're paying for it they're probably getting a commission for it. Truth. You should be leery. Listen up, folks. Guarantees sound really good, and that's why that they are included in really, really expensive, really well-paying commissioned financial products. Yeah. It's so it's so obvious, but if your advisor is telling you, I guarantee, you are paying for it in one form or another. Yeah, and he's getting paid. <laughs> Always. I liked putting this one on here because this is this is less about the dirty insides of financial advising and more about like rote financial advice that you get because it's just been around forever. And that's number seven, a lie that a financial advisor will tell you, maybe without knowing that it's a lie. Yeah, maybe maybe not actually trying to hustle you. <laughs> yeah. He would this is this is a lie that they, that we in our industry tell too often, and it's just that 
you need to be more conservative as you approach retirement. Yeah, this one definitely is different than the other ones we've talked about, because for one, I, I think that, you know, you look at this and, and this would appear to be someone who does have your best interest at heart. But this is a different world that we're living in than 25 or 30 years ago, when a lot of the norms in our business or the old mainstays kind of came about and they maybe don't apply or don't apply as much as they used to. So that idea of getting more conservative as you approach retirement, this is why target date funds drive me crazy. Yeah. And, and it's the canned option inside of, you know, most 401k plans and things like that these days. It's just simply not true. And there's a few reasons for that, Jason. Can you think of any off the top of your head? Yeah, interest rates are bad and you cannot get a good return on safe bonds, government bonds. The return's not there like it used to be. Yeah, this this whole glide path scenario of listeners may have heard this rule of thumb, and that is take your age, <laughs> uh, subtract it from 100. And that's how much equity exposure you should have in percentage wise. So if you're 50 years old, 100 minus 50 is 50. You should be 50% equities, 50% bonds. Or you could just take your age and say that's how much you should have in bonds. That's horrible. (laughs) But yes, that'd be an easier way to say it, Caleb. I appreciate you. (laughs) But if you think about that, Jason, I don't own a bond. I'm not even sniffing a bond at this stage in my life. And according to that, I should be in, in almost the... Classic 60-40 portfolio. Right. And it just doesn't... It just, First of all, it hasn't worked for like the last 10... Since 2008 and nine. It just has not and, worked. And, and you said bad interest rates. Here's the thing. We've had low interest rates for so long. I think we forget that we are at historic lows. Historically yeah. bad interest rates for a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. And these unwritten rules were written at a time when you could easily get 4 or 5 6% on your bonds. Safe bonds. Yeah. You get that on a life insurance policy. 8%, right? (laughs) We've all seen those. What could go wrong? (laughs) You could not die. That would would be horrible for those policies. That would be bad for those policies. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one. You know, I've told folks, and we just had a bunch of reviews here in the last few weeks where we talked about economics and uh, portfolio commentary and all that kind of stuff. And I think that investors are going to have to accept more risk for the same return that they're used to probably going forward. Yeah, probably. Another part of this and why it's not that great of advice is the probabilities of getting a positive return being invested in the markets over a long-term horizon, like 10 years plus, are really good, like really good. Almost undefeated. And they're really, like the Great Depression happened and that was bad, but they're really good uh, probabilities that you're going to have a positive return over the longer time period that you that you invest in. So when you retire, let's say it's a prototypical retiree, they're going to retire at 65. They're not going to take their entire 401k or IRA and put it in the bank, or they're not going to spend it all right now. No, and that's the idea of of being conservative in retirement. Like, do you not still have a twenty year time horizon at sixty five? This is going to sound so corny, but I think that people are built with this mentality that I have to save up and work to retirement, to retirement. But what you don't realize, and and when we go back to some of the other episodes where we talked about retirement, the the retirement that we think of now, and social security, and why it came about, and all that kind of stuff. The truth is that the average retirement is lasting a whole lot longer than it We're used living to. real long. You can't plan to retirement. You've got to plan through retirement. And like you said, let's say that you have a million dollar portfolio by the time that you, you get to retirement age. Congratulations. You've done a great job. You wouldn't for a second honestly think about moving that all to cash. And the, the reason is real simple. Are you going to spend a million dollars now because you're retired? Well, no. 
How long is it going to take you to spend that million dollars? More than a few years, I would hope. So yeah, that, that really is just a mindset change, I think. And this is one of those lies that we'll, we'll say maybe is an unintentional lie uh, and doesn't necessarily come from a bad place. But I think that a lot of advisors, especially starting at some of those firms that we talked about who have a system of this is how we do things and this is portfolio management and, and, you know, um, that's just kind of how they're brought up. So new advisors are brought up to think this and that's never actually applied in their lifetime. Right. And it really it's the difference between like actually planning with someone uh, based on their values and individual goals and educating them versus just being like, here's a boilerplate. This is what everybody does. This is what you should do. Done. Sell you a commission investment product and then you're off and good to go. Yeah. And I, I hate to say for some of these big firms with big compliance departments and things like that, you know, the idea is really this is where the firm stands on this. So for people in this age range, this is where you need to be. Call it a day. Nobody's going to be in trouble if something bad happens. But is it really the best thing for clients? the numbers would suggest something entirely different. Yeah, that one's a little bit uh, different than the others we talked about. We talked about a lot of really good stuff today and we could probably go on and on. Why don't we go ahead, Jason, and distill it down and uh, kind of break down what we talked about for our listeners and, and some bullet. Yeah, here are the distillates from today's talk. Number one, you could do this on your own, but you probably don't have the time or the energy and that's why you'd outsource it to a financial advisor. Or it might not be the best use of your time and energy, right. definitely. So yeah, I agree. Number two, nobody beats the average all of the time. If someone could do it, someone would figure out how to duplicate it and everyone would do it. Mm -hmm. Number three, everything costs something. Yeah, pretty simple. <laughs> Number four, your advisor should be a fiduciary all of the time. Not just when it benefits them, Jason. That's right. Okay. Not when it just creates a nice recurring revenue stream. Uh, and uh, like I said, uh, that doesn't make them the best, but it is a step in the right direction. Yeah, Those are good points, Jason. Uh, if we had some calls to action for our listeners, um, the first one I'm going to uh, really kind of encourage here would be if you're at this process where you're, um, you know, you're looking for an advisor, I would interview multiple financial advisors when you're looking for help. Yeah. Like anything else, you really need to find someone that you click with, that you jive with, someone that you can trust. You know what? It might be the first person that you meet with. That's great, but you won't know unless you talk to other people. If you are open with advisors when you meet with them and let them know, hey, I'm shopping around. I'm, I'm trying to make a decision. Here's a red flag. If they don't like that, <laughs> they might be hiding something or they might be worried that another advisor is going to call them on some of their lies. I tell people all the time when, when we interview new clients, I say, this is a, as much about you and I being a fit. You know, You have to be a fit here just as much as I have to be a fit for you. I encourage you to interview multiple advisors. I trust that you'll come back and see me. If not, somebody else is a better fit and I want what's best for you. Yeah. Not everybody likes our shenanigans <laughs> and that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> we still like you. If you're listening to this show, you probably do. I hope so. Uh, the second thing uh, would be to make sure that you feel confident that your advisor has your best interest in mind at all time. Like Jason said, um, being a fiduciary makes it a little bit harder to not be, um, it just, you know, you could still be a crook. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but these are things that, I, like I said, at the very beginning, I think, you know, when you're dealing with somebody, if they're actually looking out for your best interest, if they're teaching you, uh, while they're, while they're developing the plan, uh, if you're growing and learning as a person, when you work with this person, you know, that's a good indicator. 
Hey, I'm a big fan of the fee-only community. It is a step in the right direction. You can check out NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A dot org dot com. National Association of Professional Financial Advisors. It's the fee-only community. You can find an advisor there that at least uh, fits into that mold. Uh, the third call to action, Jason, that I'm going to challenge our listeners to do is do your own research and ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can tell you there's nothing more uncomfortable than meeting with a client or a prospective client for the first time and saying, what questions do you have for me? Uh, I don't know. This is going to be a long 45 <laughs> minutes. No, I, I really, um, you know, my favorite clients to work with are the ones who do come with opinions, but also are are able to learn and ask questions. Trust your gut, do your own research, and, and find somebody that lines up with your values. Yeah, man. Great. All right. That's good stuff, Jason. Moving on. Great stuff. It's time for questions. Straight up. Today's question, Caleb, comes from Marcus, our good friend, and I actually heard him, must have been his daughter on the show that he was talking with uh-huh. on his podcast, uh, What's in Your Cup? Check it out, folks. It's good stuff. Uh, he was ta- he, I heard him uh, drop our podcast recommendation to her, and so I think that's where his question to us comes from. He says, my daughter is looking to get and keep her finances in order and is asking what this old-fashioned finance thing is her dad is always talking about. So here is your test. What episode order would you suggest a mid-20-year-old listen in? Hmm. I was thinking to start with balance sheet and then budgeting, but I'm not the finance guy. I'm just a fan. Cheers. That's awesome. Marcus, thank you so much for your participation in the speakeasy and for recommending people all the time. That's great. I think you're on the right track there. I don't have our episode list in front of us, but someone in their mid-20s, it sounds like they want to make sure that they're on track and they stay on track. I would agree with budgeting and personal balance sheets. And actually, this one's shaping up to be one of those episodes that when you get ready to look for a financial advisor, you might want to be well prepared for that one. Any other ones that jump out at you? I I think budgeting is the number one uh, episode I would recommend. That's the number one concept to get, especially in your mid-20s. The balance sheet one is good because it gives you some benchmarking to go towards and kind of how to keep track of that. So those go hand in hand. I I think the, the first 401k episode that we did would probably be good because it's likely that that will be a, a saving option. But it also kind of applies to even if you're just opening your own Roth IRA. Did we have an episode where we talked about the hierarchy of savings? We, no, we did not. We've talked about it. So we should do that soon. Another one that comes to mind, if you can wade through the shenanigans and us trying to figure out our format. <laughs> the first episode, Old Fashions on the Old Fashioned Finance Podcast. From Fear the, the, Through the Eyes of Madness. We spent a lot more time on shenanigans in that one, but we did talk about paying off debt versus investing and things like that. So that might be somewhere that you're at in that journey too. Again, if you can wade through the shenanigans and listen, check it out. If you find yourself wanting to turn it off and ditch the podcast, just turn it off. Or just skip ahead like to 30 minutes, I think, <laughs> in that go. first episode. Uh, you'll get to us actually talking about finance finally <laughs> instead of like, what our favorite colors are. I, I think that's probably... You're, you're on the right track there, Marcus. Those are the best places to start. And just keep listening. Yeah, man. Hey, Caleb, did anything come into the speakeasy this week? Well, yes, Jason, something did come into the speakeasy. In reference to the financial infidelity episode, Matt says, Love this episode. Definitely reinforce that we may be on the right track. We've worked through a lot with finances and 21 years of marriage. 
that's good to hear, Matt. Thank you for listening. And I know that you're a loyal uh, listener and participant on the speakeasy. Keep it coming. I'm glad that we're reinforcing some good behavior. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I'm very glad for it. Are you distracted? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jason's distracted, so I think it's that time, folks. Well, thanks for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We would love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with all the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. 